to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I'm Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. And in today's episode, we wanted to do something that we haven't done yet before, which is to rebroadcast one of our previous episodes. In fact, this is our very first episode that we ever released to the public on the topic of what is an Air Force officer. Exactly. Colin, something you and I talk about all the time is the importance of assessing self. We're going to kind of demonstrate what that looks like a little bit. We're going to examine the things we thought about, the things we mentioned in that episode, and give ourselves a sanity check. Where are we now? How have we changed? Have we grown? Has, have those opinions adjusted in any way? And see what we can learn from that. We're going to kind of show what this looks like. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a very interesting experience over the last few weeks, re-listening to this episode a number of different times and taking some notes on what we thought about officership, what it means to be an officer at that time, and how we have grown over the course of time. So we want to share our thoughts with all of you on what we've learned since we started doing this podcast. If you have already listened to this episode before, feel free to fast forward to the end because the substance of the episode itself is not going to be that different. But we invite you to stick around for the commentary where we share those thoughts. And with that, let's turn it over to us. Never done that before. Yeah. All right. Catch you on the backside. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Commission Ed, the podcast where we discuss Air Force officership and the profession of arms. And we felt it was important that we start at the very beginning. What is an officer to begin with? So the way that we're going to approach this is we're going to first take a look at the actual legal documents that govern what an Air Force officer is, meaning what do the you know, Air Force instructions have to say about what an officer is. And from there, Reed and I will you know, share our own personal thoughts on, based on our own experience, our own education, our own development, what we think an officer is, or even what an officer should be. So I'm going to start off with, which I think is a really fascinating thing. When we swear an oath, and you join the military, you join the profession of arms, you swear to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. And that is where we find the basis for what it is to be an officer in Title 10 of the U.S. Code. And I'm not going to read all of those sections, but it's subtitle A, Part 2, Chapter 33, Section 532. So if you really want to, you can look this all up. Is this something you can Google read? This absolutely something you can Google. I think there's some really fascinating things in here that I just kind of want to highlight. So first, you have to be a citizen of the United States. I think that makes sense. But believe it or not, that actually can be a challenge for those who are, you know, born somewhere else and come over here and want to join. Have you had to fight with anything like that or try to work through dual citizenship status with any of your students or anything like that? Absolutely. Yeah, I've had quite a few 
foreign nationals, people that are brought over to Brigham Young University on a student visa, stop in my office and say, I love your country. How do I serve it? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing to work through. We've had some similar situations happen. The second one is something that I'll come back to a couple times today is of good moral character. We'll go into that much more in depth when we get into kind of our thoughts on this. You have to be physically qualified for active service. And then the fourth is something, again, I'll come back to. Other special qualifications, essentially, we get to pick the rules of the club that we're in. Each service basically gets to determine what those things are. So do you want to talk about what the Air Force says it's looking for? Absolutely. So this comes from Air Force Instruction 36-2005, titled Officer Sessions. It's a unwieldy document. It has lots of verbiage in there, a lot of things that outline various special cases for what an officer is. But if you really boil it down to the essential minimum eligibility requirements, there are eight things that are common across all Air Force officers. As already mentioned, the first one is that you must be an American citizen. Interesting thing about that one, though, I mm-hmm. found an exception to it. Interesting. I was not aware that there was an exception. The Secretary of the Air Force personally can make an exception, but it has to be an extreme circumstance in order to make that exception. It would be interesting to dig in somewhere and see where, when, if that exception has ever been made. I suspect strongly that there's a reason that there's an exception in there. Something must have come up. Right. Yeah, Yeah, that would be a really interesting case study. So second to being an American citizen, anybody who wants to be an officer in the Air Force must not be a conscientious objector. Reed, can you tell us what a conscientious objector is? A conscientious objector is someone who has a deeply held personal moral belief against the use of force. That's the most succinct way I can call it. There are some faith traditions and other cultures that are you know, deeply held personal beliefs against using force against their fellow men. And those people constitute what is a conscientious objector. They're, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, a familiar example that has come up recently is from the movie Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know if you took the opportunity to see that movie. It's fantastic. But the entire movie is based around this one particular individual who is a conscientious objector. Now, he was able to serve in the military, but he was a private. He was not an officer. And that's an important distinction to make there is that you cannot be an officer in the Air Force and be also a conscientious objector. Can I add something in there real quick? Please. I think it's important to note that This does not mean that you thrive off the blood of your enemies. It doesn't mean that you have to be a bloodthirsty type individual. It just means you cannot have a deeply held moral conviction against use of force. It is my most deep and sincere desire that I do not have to use force on behalf of the nation to make my enemies succumb to our will. History has shown that is required, that force is required, and I'm happy to fulfill that role for my nation. I just think that's an important distinction. Sometimes I'd have counseling sessions with my cadets, and they'd say things like, I don't really want to kill people, but I will if I'm asked to. And that's the kind of things we had to kind of talk through sometimes. Yeah, definitely something that we're going to want to address in a later episode about what does the profession of arms mean? And I know we may get into that a little bit later. It would be good to focus in on that specifically in its own episode, what does it mean to be a professional at arms, a professional at arms, be in the profession of arms? 
Yeah. And what does it mean by use of force? What does it mean to be part of the kill chain? How does every person in the military play a role in the use of force, either lethal or non-lethal? I think that's something that really worthwhile you know, for us to discuss and help some of our listeners better understand what it is that we do, what it is that they might be involved in if they choose to join or continue with a career in the Air Force or any military branch of service. So that's the second one is you can't be a conscientious objector. Also in line with the Title 10 requirements, the Air Force requires that you be of sound moral character. Now this primarily includes a lack of serious criminal activity or use of illicit drugs, but it also includes your ability to obtain a security clearance that is relative to your specific responsibility as an officer in the Air Force, what Air Force specialty code or career field you get assigned to. After that, after the moral character, we get into age limits. You have to be at least 18 to receive a commission. And there are new age requirements that are currently in the process of being updated for how old you can possibly be. Usually the maximum age is somewhere around 40, but I've seen as high as 49. It does depend on the career field you're selected for, what component, whether you're active guard or reserve. It also matters if you have some prior enlisted time. So that's actually a pretty complicated question. And if you are in that boat and wondering if you're on that edge, definitely recommend we get you in front of an expert to work through all those intricacies. Yeah, contact a local recruiter, go to a local detachment you know, for Air Force ROTC or get in touch with an OTS instructor or a recruiter. They're definitely the ones that can help you find out if you are within the correct age limit for the career that you want to go into or just to get into the Air Force at all. Number five now, after age is you must be physically qualified. Now that comes in two pieces. The first, really the biggest one here is that you are medically qualified for service in the Air Force. Now that goes through Dodmerb, which deserves its own podcast entirely of how to navigate the, the Dodmerb system. What Dodmerb, does Dodmerb stand for, Colin? Dodmerb stands for Department of Defense Medical Evaluation Review Board. It is a mouthful and the beast of a system, but that's another episode. Sounds good. The second piece of being physically qualified is your level of physical fitness and capability, primarily going to be measured by your physical fitness test or what we call the fitness assessment or FA. And that is governed by another Air Force instruction 362905. I'm sure that we'll have another episode on that one about our thoughts and feelings on the fitness assessment, but that's for another time. After being physically qualified, so number six now, is you must have earned a bachelor's degree in order to be an officer in the Air Force. What does that mean by earning a bachelor's degree, Reed? Exactly what it says. You need to have achieved from an accredited university a degree that warrants a Bachelor of Science, Bachelor of Arts. There are some careers in the Air Force that do require a specific bachelor's degree. There are others that do not. They simply require that you have one. So depending on what you're interested in doing, and again, we're going to talk all about this at a future time, you'll have to select your major accordingly. So just to be straight and be clear, does every officer in the Air Force have a bachelor's degree? Yes, they do. If you have a bachelor's degree, 
do you have to be an officer? You do not. What else can you do then if you still want to serve in the Air Force and you already have a bachelor's degree? So there are two primary divisions amongst the members of the Air Force and all of the armed forces. There are enlisted members and there are officers. You are welcome to enlist. I know people with PhDs who have enlisted. The requirements for joining the Air Force are very similar from the physical perspective, from the moral character perspectives, from the citizenship perspective. The difference between an officer and enlisted is something we'll get into much more in depth. But if you have a bachelor's degree and are interested in joining the Air Force, becoming an officer is available to you. Or you can get your training in order to join the Air Force as an officer while you are also working on your bachelor's. And that is the main difference between Air Force ROTC and the academy versus officer training school, which we will explain in further depth later on in other episodes, how those different commissioning sources work in conjunction with getting that bachelor's degree. So number seven now in this list is every officer must have passed the Air Force Officer Qualifying Test or AFOQT. The AFOQT is an aptitude test that measures various different skills, qualitative, quantitative, about various different Air Force-centric things and measures your, again, your aptitude to be successful as an officer in the Air Force. Now, Reed, why would we care about your qualitative and quantitative abilities or aptitudes? We do a lot of technical stuff by the nature of our service. A lot of career fields are very heavily involved in technology, very heavily involved in critical thinking, quantitative analysis. I joined as a chemist, and my first job was as a nuclear physicist. That requires a little bit of knowledge. And so being able to assess an individual for their capability in that arena is essential. Yes, we need people of all sorts with all different skills and abilities, but our branch is uniquely positioned within the other services as one that is much more centered on technology, much more focused on that. You can argue that the entire birth of our service was because of you know the dramatic advancement and the creation of the aircraft. So that's just, it's kind of built into our DNA and history of who we are. Do we use the ASVAB? I had to take it when I went through MEPS because they wouldn't allow me to go through MEPS without it. Really? Yes. Interesting. See, I never took it. Did you go to MEPS though? When I came back into active duty, I went to MEPS, but I didn't have to take the ASVAB. It's because you were already in. Interesting. Yeah, so when, now it was a mistake, right? They, when I came back with my scores, I'm going to brag a little bit. I absolutely crushed the abs fab. Um, <laughs> they were like, you can enlist and do any career field you want. But anyway, that's when they're like, oh, you're going to OTS. We actually didn't need to do that. And I said, yeah, that's what this like waiver piece of paper said, but they forgot <laughs> to read it. So anyway, I do know it's a progressive test. So it actually gets harder the longer you answer correct questions. And if you continue to answer correct questions, the higher your score goes. And it will kind of reach a point where okay, you're getting all these questions correct, and then you move on. Yeah, I've never taken it, and I honestly know nothing about it. So I'm glad that you have taken it so that you can share your limited expertise on it. It's a much broader test. I mean, I remember answering questions about car parts, about pretty much everything. I mean, it's a really broad test. As I understand, the test is designed to identify what career fields you would be eligible for and have a 
higher chance of success in. Again, not something I know enough about, but I did take it. I did do well. And <laughs> that's what I remember. It was a waste of an hour I'll never get back. So, Yeah. The ASVAB and the AFOQT are not the same, not even close. The AFOQT is best described as an ACT with an Air Force spin on it. I think that's a really good description. That's absolutely what it felt like. So if you have never taken the ACT before, that is probably the best way to get an idea of what the AFOQT is like. And that's also probably the best way to study for it is to grab yourself an ACT prep book from Kaplan or whatever college prep company and work your way through that. We may you know, find reason to do another episode on the AFOQT and preparing for that. We'll see. So that brings us now to item number eight, which is you have to meet the requirements as dictated by the Air Force Academy, Air Force ROTC, or OTS. So whatever those commissioning sources require of you at the time, that is what you must do in order to become an officer. Which brings me right back around to some of the things we talked about when we were talking about Title 10 and that last requirement, other special qualifications, essentially as your military department decides. And then in our Air Force specific requirements, you have to meet whatever requirements we say you do. I think that's a really interesting thing. And that's a unique thing about what we do. We decide who makes it in the club. When you think about Title 10, there's actually a really short list. It's a really short list. Right. And I think that speaks back to the nature of what we do and the fact that by the nature of our service, we can and will give our lives in the fulfilling of our duties. If they have too many requirements, we're not going to be able to produce enough of us if occasion arises. And so that's where it comes into that interesting part of we decide what's important. We decide who gets into the club that we're in. Something I actually really like about this is that it gives me a sense of ownership. This is something that I wanted to be a part of. And now that I'm in, I have some say in what it becomes. It's not too often, I think, that you can join a company with the opportunity to change it into what you want it to be. And that's a really great thing about being a member of the profession of arms. That is a really interesting point. The fact that we, the members of this club, get to decide who gets to join the club with us. But Reed, don't you think that sounds really elitist? I can see that perspective. Except again, the requirements are so narrow and they're so narrowly focused on one essential thing. Someone who possesses moral character. And I think if you possess moral character, that to me is the antithesis of elitism. Yes, there's some selection involved. Yes, you have to meet certain physical requirements. Yes, you have to be a citizen of this country. But you also have to possess moral character. And a person of high moral character would seek out diverse opinions, would seek out diverse experiences, would seek out people different from themselves because they wouldn't care as much about who you are. They're going to care more about what you do and how well you do it. So I can understand that perspective, but uh, I would counter that that moral character piece, if we do that, that will get us where we need to be. Yes. My contention there is that good moral character is poorly defined. 
So yeah. let's explore that. How how would you? All it says in the in Title Ten is of good moral character, but elsewhere in Title Ten, it does not define good moral character. The Constitution does not define good moral character. So how do we define that requirement and when it's being met? Which is really interesting because that's what I think I focus most of my time as we prepared for this episode and thinking about. What are those traits? What are those qualities? What are those things that I think qualifies someone? Did you have a similar experience, Colin, as you were preparing for this? Did you kind of think about that or what aspects were you thinking about? Yeah. So yes, here's what I'm going to say. When you look at the eight things that the Air Force requires, one, American citizen, two, not a conscientious objector, three, sound moral character, four, within the age limit, five, physically qualified, both medically and level of fitness, six, they have a bachelor's degree, seven, pass the AFOQT, and eight, meet the specific requirements of the commissioning source. Of those eight things, there's really only three of them that we, the gatekeepers, can control or have any sort of influence on. I can't influence whether or not you're an American citizen. That is just fact, yes or no. I can't influence really whether you're a conscientious objector or not. I can't influence your age, obviously. I can't really influence whether you're medically qualified or your ability to earn a bachelor's degree, or if it's already earned, I can't change that fact. It's already earned. I can't make you pass the AFOQT. So really the only things that we have any sort of influence on or any sort of control over is the sound moral character, your physical fitness, and then whatever additional requirements that are required to earn that commission. So those have to be the things that you focus on because really those are the only things that we can control or influence is moral character, physical fitness, and commissioning requirements. Yeah, no, I think that's great that we both narrowed in on those same things. And certainly, and I know we'll get to these in other discussions, uh, that was a lot of the purpose and intent of officer training school was to evaluate and provide opportunities for you to display your moral character. It was certainly the easiest way to disqualify yourself from training was to betray the standards that are expected. Yeah, so tell us what you think about moral character or any of those other things that you feel like are requirements in order to be an officer. What is an officer, Reed? Tell me, what is an officer? Such a loaded question. Again, I spent many hours thinking about this, which is really, you'd think it'd be a lot easier. I relied heavily on a book that I read when I was a brand new lieutenant that's really influenced me. And I'll cite a couple things from that, but I highly recommend it for any of our listeners. The Armed Forces Officer by Richard M. Swain and Albert C. Pierce. Maybe we'll put the description of that in the show notes. Absolutely. So again, kind of hearkening back to the things I was talking about, by the nature of our service, the fact that we will live and die potentially for our service, it puts us in a unique group and a member of the profession of arms, something they defined as groups of specialists who willingly or unwillingly assume the burden of fighting, killing, and dying for the larger group. Whatever the formal name or title given to these groups, theirs is the profession of arms. So the question is, in my mind, what is it that we are dying and killing and fighting for? What is it? And what is our duty then as an officer? And as I thought about it, for me, it boils down to 
three things. Someone who learns, someone who serves, and someone who leads. And there's a whole lot in there. For me, learning, one who is able to learn displays a necessary humility. By the fact that you are willing to learn, you recognize that you don't know something. That implies a humility and also constant change in the Department of Defense, in the world geopolitical stage, in conflict, whatever you want to say, it's always changing. So you have to be someone who's willing to learn. Serve. You have to be someone who is thinking about the benefit of others, thinking about how you can help others, thinking about how you can give of yourself to improve the station of other people. And then lead. You know, another great quote from that book, fighting and leading those who do is the unique role of the armed forces officer. And that for me is the biggest, if I had to pick one of those three, it's that idea of leading because everyone, every situation, everything requires a different approach. That doesn't mean that I'm a director. I don't tell people what to do unless that's required. I don't need to compel them unless it's required. Leadership is a gift granted by those who give you their followership. And if you can find a way for your followers to give you their followership, then I want to be that person and I want to follow those people. And so for me, that is what I focus my career on becoming, someone who other people are willing to give their followership to. I have a position of legal authority, but that does not make me a leader. That is something given to me and it is a gift. So for me, that's what it all boils down to. Learn, serve, and lead. Now I'm going to push back on you a little bit because that's what I'm good at. And any enlisted airman, you know, A1C or even Airman Basic up through Chief Master Sergeant can do those exact same things. They, yes, they can learn, they can lead. So what is the difference there? Why are they not officers? Because it is not their responsibility to be accountable for the results of everything that occurs. So that doesn't mean that they're not responsible for what they do, but ultimately by legal definition, the officer who is in charge of whatever it is, is responsible for the outcome. So really it's not about moral character, it's about responsibility then. That's fair, except those who will be successful must possess the moral character to achieve the results that are expected of them. In order to be an officer, you need the responsibility of being an officer. But in order to be successful as an officer, you need the moral character. Yes. And I think what you're getting at is just because you've checked all the boxes next to all of those things in our list, according to Title 10 and the Air Force instruction, yes, you can become an officer legally. But that doesn't mean that you will be successful. That doesn't mean people will follow you. That doesn't mean that you will accomplish the mission. And so I think both you and I want to develop the type of leaders that we would want to follow someday. Oh, absolutely. For sure. I want to develop the type of leaders that are going to be better than me, better than you, better than any officer that's currently serving. No, I absolutely concur. Absolutely. But my point is that there is something that's different about officers than the enlisted, either junior airmen, NCOs, even senior NCOs. Clearly, senior NCOs are the best leaders 
in the Air Force, are they not? Would you argue against that? Collectively, they have more experience. They have more technical knowledge. They have, hopefully, more moral character because they've been in and around the military culture for so long. The chaff has burned away. All that's left is those of good moral character. Now, we know that's not actually true on an individual basis, but collectively, that top three, top two, and top 1% of the enlisted force are the best leaders in the Air Force, but they are not officers. I don't think leadership is unique to officership. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. So yeah, absolutely. They're some of the best leaders we have, certainly. So my point is that there is still a difference between an officer and a senior NCO or non-commissioned officer. And I think I just said it. It is that word commission. There is something about the commission that makes the officer versus the non-commissioned officer. I haven't fully figured out what that is, but I'm excited about the prospect of through our conversations, through feedback from our listeners, better understanding what that commission really means. And ultimately, doesn't that get down to the heart of why we're doing this podcast, Commission Absolutely. Ed? Absolutely. We want to better understand what does the commission mean? What does it mean to be commissioned? What is a commissioned officer? How does that change the person from just being a leader, taking someone who is a leader or has the potential for leadership and making them an officer? It's a difference between leadership and officership. They're not the same thing. All right, Colin. So I kind of gave you my top things I think about when I think about how I want to develop an officer, what I think they need to possess. What are those things for you? What are those things you think about as you are counseling, training, interacting with your students? I'm going to be totally upfront and honest. I don't know. The process of trying to figure out what an officer is over the last few months since we decided that we were going to do this has led me to think that I have no idea what an officer actually is. But again, that's why I'm so excited to figure it out because I'm an officer legally on paper. People know me as an officer. I am Captain Slade. I am a captain. That is my rank. That is my title. That is my authority. But I don't know what it means. <laughs> so I'm excited to find out what that means so that I can be a better officer for myself, for my family, for the airmen that I lead, for the cadets that I instruct. I want to be a better officer. But beyond my admission of not knowing what an officer is. Let me give you some thoughts about what I think an officer could be or should be. I recently read a book called The Drillmaster of Valley Forge. It was a biography of Baron von Steuben. I'll include it in the show notes. Had an explanation there, and I believe I sent it to you, Reed, of what an officer should be. According to the understanding at the time, so this was 1777, 1778, very different time period, yet what the understanding of an officer at that time was, I think, still applicable today. The book described the officers and von Steuben as a father figure to his people. Now, Reed, you have kids? I do. I have kids. You and I both know what it means to be a father figure. I'm trying every day to figure that out. Just like you are trying to figure out what it means to be an officer. That's great. And that's kind of to my point is that everybody knows what a father is. We know what it looks like. We know what it means to be a good father. And yet it's so hard to 
put it in words. And those who are actually in that responsibility are completely floored by it. Being a father is by far the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. It's also the most rewarding. Second to that is being a husband. Third to that is being an officer. Being an officer is so hard, but it's so rewarding. I absolutely concur. Absolutely. And those of us that are in the military, either as an officer or enlisted, we all know what it looks like when it comes to what an officer is. But it's so hard to describe. Just it's hard to describe what a good father is, but we know what right looks like. And so from that book, they described officers as a father figure to their people. And now picture a father. It's someone who cares about their children. Or in the officer context, the officer cares with fatherly love, with that tender love for their people. They want to raise their people, their airmen, to be better than themselves. They want to give them every opportunity to succeed. They want to you know, remove obstacles. They want to provide opportunities for growth and development. They want to protect them. But at the same time, they want to make sure that they don't hamstring them. They don't want to create this bubble around their people so that they stagnate, they stale, or they can't accomplish the mission because they don't have you know, the grit or the equipment or the technical know-how. So an officer is someone who is trying to grow more officers, really. A father is trying to grow more fathers. Or yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent others. point. I've heard that as a definition of leader. A leader is someone who creates more leaders. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth mentioning too, before we get too far, mothers, we don't want to forget our sisters in arms, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And thank you for making that point. And I have it written here in my notes. It's a father or mother figure. And that's entirely an important and appropriate point to make is that we don't just want father figures. We also want mother figures. We want both male and female officers because they bring that different and synergistic perspective to the raising of future officers, just like a father and a mother bring that perspective to the raising of their children. So let us be completely open and honest about what we want in the Air Force. We want men and women. We want good men, good women of moral character who can be father and mother figures to their airmen. Now, that does not mean that they have to be fathers and mothers themselves. It is a figurative role that you are in this position of responsibility, of love and protection and fostering growth of these people that you are responsible for. Thank you, Reed. Yeah, absolutely. And with that comes this, what we call emotional intelligence, this ability for you to understand another person's perspective, their feelings, their thoughts, their strengths, their weaknesses, just as a father or mother would know of their own people, that you have to know your people in order to help them grow. If you don't know who your people are, then you're not being a good officer. You may have the title, but you are not functioning as an officer. Yeah, being able to connect on the appropriate level with your folks in order to bring them the success they are seeking is a challenge. We have people from all types of backgrounds and experiences and I only have one background and experience. Right. And I can't only rely on the tools that were successful in getting me where I am today. I have to figure out what it is about them that makes them who they are. And that is hard. 
it's hard work. It's deliberate work. It's not something that people just have. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't happen by accident. Yeah, that's something that I grow impatient with that, oh, there are natural leaders. I think there are people who have some characteristics that lend them to be more successful, but I do not think that leaders are born. I think it is absolutely something you have to work on. Oh, absolutely. I agree entirely that you don't come into this world prepared to be an officer any more than you come into this world prepared to be a father or a mother. Yeah, it takes work. Leaders are grown, they are trained, they are developed. Now you can bring some natural aptitude to that process of growth and development. But no, it is definitely a deliberate process. It does not happen by accident. For these next couple of things, I want to talk about Dave Grossman's work. Um, have you had a chance to read any of his books or any of his articles on killing or on combat? I have read some of his work, yeah. So he's a really fascinating intellectual thinker, psychologist, officer in the army. And he talks about this idea of being inoculated against hate. So I want to you know, pull up his book and read you some of these quotes to give you an idea of what I mean by being inoculated against hate. So he says that this process of inoculation is exactly what occurs in boot camps and in every other military school worthy of its name. When raw recruits are faced with a seemingly sadistic abuse and hardship, they are, among many other things, being inoculated against the stresses of combat. When in the face of all this manufactured contempt and overt physical hostility, the recruit overcomes the situation to graduate with honor and pride. He realizes at both conscious and unconscious levels that he can overcome such overt interpersonal hostility. He has become partially inoculated against hate. So we see there that in order to be in the military, there's this process of inoculation against the stresses of combat, against the hate that you will face from an enemy starts in our training programs, which is why we see some of those same sort of things happen in our commissioning sources at Air Force ROTC field training, at you know, zero day for OTS or the academy. It begins that process of inoculation. So my personal opinion is that an effective officer should be inoculated and is being continually inoculated against the winds of hate, against the stresses of combat. Without that, then they're just not prepared for not only actual combat, but the stresses of leadership, of leading and overseeing the accomplishment of a mission. They're unprepared for just a Monday morning, right? Because you never know what's going to be behind that door whether you're kicking it in and taking out the bad guys with your M4 or you have this airman waiting for you on the other side with all of their problems. So I think you brought up and described very well how we initiate that process. How do we continue that process as we develop, as we grow, as we escape, as you put it, from our initial training experiences? I don't think we do. I personally think that continual inoculation against hate ends as soon as you pin on those second lieutenant bars. How many major theater exercises have you been to? Zero. Okay. Okay. They're awful. Now, let From me. So, in my career field, 
there is no operational reason to continue that inoculation process. Now, I know it continues in other career fields, especially like the fighter pilots. Maintenance, that is a very stressful career field. I imagine that Intel is as well. There are times and places where you feel those winds of hate from your fellow officers or senior NCOs that continues that inoculation process. But that's a very small part of the Air Force. The vast majority of officers in the Air Force are in a support function, and we do not continue to be inoculated against the stresses of combat as it happens in and through our commissioning sources. Go ahead and tell me what you were thinking. No, just that's one of the probably underlying reasons we do some of these major exercises. I'm talking like red flags. I'm talking theater level, thousands of individuals involved, aircraft flying, made up scenarios, late nights, 24-hour watches, all that stuff that we do at great expense to the members and to the federal government is to ensure that you are being stressed, ensure that you are being tested, ensure that you are ready for when you have to actually do these things in real life. And I've had plenty of opportunities to be inoculated in those types of training environments. I'm glad. I have not. Okay. You've done two deployments and I haven't. So there's that. (laughs) And it's one of the reasons why I'm such a fan of drill is because I feel like that is one way that we can continue to inoculate the support officers and their airmen against the stresses of hate. Once you leave your commissioning source, you never drill again, ever. Unless it's in a very short spurt for some ceremonial function. Change of command, that type of thing. Or you're in trouble. Yes. You could also argue that would be, and this is something we can talk about later, where physical fitness and unit physical fitness could come in. Emphasis on the word could. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, so that's one of my things that I feel that an officer should be inoculated against the stresses of combat and continually inoculated against the stresses of combat not just for themselves, but so their unit can successfully get the mission done when they are actually called to do the thing. Continuing on with Dave Grossman's work, he talks about this idea of a well of fortitude being a key characteristic that allows somebody to bounce back from the stress of combat. So he says, one key characteristic of a great military leader is an ability to draw from the tremendous depths of fortitude within his own. And in doing so, he is fortifying his own men by permitting them to draw from his well. So not only does he have this well of fortitude or this ability to stare into the depths of darkness and hate and remain cool, calm and collected himself, but because he or she is able to remain strong in that circumstance, their men are also able to do it. Their airmen are able to draw on their strength in order to continue to be successful. So I think that an officer is someone who is not only inoculated against hate, but has a well of fortitude that is big enough and full enough to feed not only themselves, but their people. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. I've not heard it put in that term, but I absolutely see that manifests in a lot of ways. I think it's one reason we talk about bearing at training, right? Because when things are getting difficult, and this is something I would constantly instruct my students on, the importance of maintaining bearing. I guess we should define that for some who may not know. Maintaining a stoicism in the face of stress, not using nonverbals to display discomfort or 
to have an emotional or physical response to a very stressful situation is maintaining bearing, like not giggling at something you think might be funny when the situation doesn't call for it. Sure. Yeah. Not flinching when someone's in your face a little bit, like showing that you can be someone who can be relied upon, someone who has, as described, a well of fortitude that can be drawn from. Because when you're in a position of leadership, that opportunity will come. Something bad will happen and your folks are going to turn and they're going to look at you. And yeah, if you do not have that well of fortitude ready, then you will have failed them. Yeah. So Grossman continues to say, this is why fortitude rather than courage is the proper word to describe what is occurring here. The opposite of courage is cowardice, but the opposite of fortitude is exhaustion. When the soldier's well is dry, his very soul is dry. That's fascinating. And this is from his work on killing? This is from On Killing. Okay. One more thing from his work that I think is, and really wraps up what I think is important as far as what an officer is, is this idea of responsibility and accountability. So Grossman says, the responsibilities of a combat leader represent a remarkable paradox. To be truly good at what he does, he must love his men and be bonded to them with powerful links of mutual responsibility and affection. And then he must ultimately be willing to give the orders that may kill them. So what we see here is, as mentioned before, that fatherly love and affection towards the airmen, towards their people, but a willingness to make the hard choice to send that airman to their death, if that's really what is required, and a willingness to own the consequence of that decision. Now, most officers are not going to be put into a position of making that type of life or death call or order for their airmen, but we are in a position of responsibility and we have to be accountable to it because by the decisions we make, we can put an airman on a path to success or a path to failure. We can change their life for good or for bad. And that can be a temporary thing or in some circumstances, it can be very permanent. And as an officer, you need to be prepared. You need to have the willingness, the capability, the aptitude for making the hard decisions and owning the consequences of that decision. Now, I think that in my limited understanding of what the commission is, I think that's really where it's at, is that responsibility and that potential for command. A senior NCO, as awesome as a leader that they may be, will never be a commander. But built into the commission of an officer is that intrinsic possibility, that latent possibility for command, where you have to make that call, you have to make that choice, and then own the consequence of that decision. Now, on that note, if you'll allow me, I'm going to wax religious. If you can quote for me or look it up and read it for me, John 3.16. So I think I know it, but because I think I know it, I'm going to actually read it. All right. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we see in this verse, an officer in action. We see God, the Lord of hosts, the captain who loves his son, who loves his servant, who loves his airman, but makes the call to send him and have him die in order to accomplish the mission. I had never read that way. 
So not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I've never read it that way before. That's it, a really great point. It's obviously from a Christian context, but it shows kind of what we're looking for in an officer. We're looking for godlike men and women, people of good moral character, godlike moral character, who are willing to love their people and yet make the hard decision to send them to do the hard thing and own the consequence of that decision. God, clearly, whoever your God is, could be a Christian God, it could be Allah, whoever that God is, is inoculated against the winds of hate. Whoever your God is, has a well of fortitude that is big enough and deep enough for their people. God is willing to make those hard decisions and own the consequences of them because God is consistent and God is eternal. So this is part of the reason why I'm so humbled and in awe of this idea of a commission, because on some level, I feel like I have been put into a deified position where I am responsible for the lives and possibly the deaths of other people. And I have to be willing to own those decisions and consequences. I think it's a big deal. No, I think it is too. I hadn't thought of it like that before. Man, you're way too close to this right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But that's good. I mean, that's what you're doing right now. So that makes sense. Anyway, you know, I recognize that when we use that type of language, nobody will ever measure up. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that we can't strive for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. A lot to think about. So, Reed. Yes. Do we have a better understanding of what an officer is? Maybe a little bit. Certainly give us something to think about. But getting back to something that I mentioned on my list, if you will, as someone willing to learn, I think it's essential to recognize that we don't know everything. And that's what we're here to do. And if I can learn something new every day, it's been a good day. So I've absolutely learned something. And this has given me a lot to think about. And uh, hopefully for our listeners, we've given you something to think about. And each day we get better. Like I said, that's a good day. Welcome back, audience. Thank you for sticking around. A couple things I want to point out really quick that we haven't highlighted on our podcast yet. We want to give a shout out to two new members of our team who've been helping us out. So we've got Steve Sanchez as our audio producer and Carlos Rivera, who composed our new music. I don't know about you, Colin, but I can definitely tell the audio has significantly improved. Yes. We've definitely dialed in what that needs to, you know, the hardware and the software and the things that we need to do to make that better. And Steve really gave a lot of good guidance and has helped us out a lot. Absolutely. Steve has been fantastic. And the same is true for our music. The original bumper music was composed and played by me. And I'm not a terrible musician, but... Carlos completely blows anything that I could have done out of the water. So those are kind of fun little additions that we clearly notice as we listen to all the old stuff. So really glad to have those two chipping in and helping out and making the podcast better. Yeah, for sure. So grateful for Carlos and Steve being part of the team. One of the first things that I want to bring up here, Reed, in the vein of things that we have learned since we originally released this episode is that... We talk about the requirements to become an officer in the episode and how that was governed by AFI 36-2005. That has since been changed, and it actually changed right about the same time that we released this episode. So the, the new guidance 
is a consolidation of a large number of different Air Force instructions into an Air Force manual, AFMAN 36-2032, which covers accessions for both enlisted and officers. And in that guidance, you will find that certain number of things from the original eight requirements have changed in order for someone to be eligible to receive a commission. We're not going to address what those changes are right now. And the reason for that is because things are changing. They have changed. They will continue to change. Under General Brown's leadership and Chief Bass, things are going to continue to change with respect to how we recruit and assess talent into the Air Force. And so we want to let things continue on their natural course before we make any significant commentary on that. But I do recommend that members of our audience, especially those who are in the business of mentoring future officers or those who want to become an officer, go check out AFMAN 36-2032. Yeah. And some of the tools that we use to recruit, retain talent are also likely changing as well. And that's another reason we don't want to get too much into these specific things because they're all, it's all kind of one part of a bigger whole. It, we've got more things coming and a quick little preview. We're going to be talking about those in the coming weeks. So we will be getting into some of those things, just not here. It just didn't make sense for this episode. Yeah. So what are some other things that you want to talk about, Reed? What have we learned since we started on this journey of doing a podcast, sharing with others our philosophies on leadership, on officership? What does it mean to be an officer? What have we learned since then? Um, that I thought I knew something about it. <laughs> I think that's a big take home for me. And Colin, you and I talked about this before we came on and recorded, and I'm still trying to pin this down. And you can hear it in my voice, but when we started this podcast, I feel that at least, you know, speaking for me, I don't want to speak for you, but speaking for me, I felt that I had something to share, that I knew something about this, and I was teaching the audience. I was giving to the audience. That was definitely the way I felt about things. I don't feel that way anymore. Now, I still have some experience and knowledge, but somewhere along this journey, I feel that I do this more to learn than I do to teach. Yeah. And I know that's a very subtle difference, but it's real. And I get just as excited to share. I get just as excited to sit down with you and do those recordings and push them out to the audience, but for a whole different reason. Mm -hmm. It's all about, hey, I don't know stuff about this. I need to learn more. And it's forcing me, instead of just, I don't know, getting in a Facebook flame war, I actually have to think about solutions. I actually have to think about the second, third, fourth order effects. I have to think about implementation, or I have to think about what does this really mean if we were to bring these ideas to reality. So somewhere along the line there, I went from, hey, I know some stuff I'm going to share to, man, I don't know anything about this. Yeah. And I'm learning a lot and I'm getting a lot of value out of this. I can't figure out where or when that happened, but I'm glad that transition occurred. And I hope that I hope that you can hear that. As I'm listening to myself, I'm like, man, that cocky SOB felt like he knew some stuff. <laughs> like I just felt my voice. And I'm just like, ooh, I don't like that guy. And maybe, maybe, maybe that's harsh. We're always our own worst critics, but that's kind of like the biggest thing that stuck out to me. There are other things. We talked about how we need to talk about evaluations. We haven't done that yet. We're going to be talking about that. We talked about my learn, serve, lead model yeah. about what a leader is. I like that. It still works for me. We're going to talk more about that today. But yeah, just that's my biggest overall is, 
man, I went from someone who knew something and was going to teach to someone who's hopefully learning. And that's the biggest thing I noticed. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We set out to do this podcast because we felt we had something to share. We recognized that there was a gap in knowledge and we felt that we could fill it. But the reality is there was a gap in our own knowledge that has continuously been filled through the process of doing the research for these episodes, the interviews that we've had over the last year and a half that have really taught us what it means to be an officer and how to apply our skills, our knowledge, our abilities on behalf of the Air Force and the airmen that we work with. That has been incredibly rewarding. And I think that goes to kind of where we want to talk about just in general about in this commentary here and then the episodes that are following here in the next few weeks about what an officer should be. An officer should be continuously learning, which goes then to exactly what you were saying about your trio of qualities, the learn, serve, lead type of perspective of an officer. So, hey, Reed, we're doing it. We are learning as officers, and that hopefully is going to continue to help us better serve and lead others in the Air Force. Yeah. So, yeah, not to be too harsh on myself, I did get that right, at least a little bit, I, the necessity of learning. And to answer your question specifically, something I've definitely learned more about over this journey so far, and, you know, as part of my studies with ACSE and just becoming an FGO, I'm starting to get an inkling of the importance of command, the centrality of what it means. And I'm not a commander, so... I know that there's a whole lot more to this, but I'm starting to realize that it's a big deal. It's always been a big deal, right? It's always been the penultimate, yeah. this is what we want to do. We want to become a commander. That's always kind of been the company answer on what should an officer be? Well, an officer should be a commander. That's the goal. I'm starting to understand why, Yeah. at least to get a perspective on, oh, this is kind of important. It's kind of a big deal. And I think we'll talk about that in coming weeks. The ultimate end of an officer is to become a joint force commander. That is a big deal. Yeah. It's a big responsibility. Our entire force structure, every training, learning, education opportunity is all made to create this leader, this commander, and the authority that they are then given. And so that importance of command and authority is starting to sink in. It only took 10 years, Colin. It's always been something I understood intellectually. I'm starting to see more in depth what that, how central and how important that really is. Yeah. And I feel like we haven't done command enough justice in our episodes up to this point. We've talked about it, but we haven't really done it justice. What it means to be a commander. I mean, not that you and I could do it justice because we don't have that experience. We've never held the burden of command. And so oh, yeah. We're going to have to find some folks, for sure. Oh, yes, for sure. And that certainly is then on the roadmap. Our goals for the future of this podcast is to bring in commanders, people who have had that experience. And we got a taste of it with Colonel Fred Thaden in his episode on officer development and the perspective that he had of having been in the highest levels of leadership within the Air Force. But yeah, it's definitely something we need to spend more time on, both you and I individually, because we are officers. We see the potential that's before us to eventually 
be in positions of command and we need to be ready for that. But we owe it to our audience as well to help them understand command and why they should or should not pursue it. Yeah. Yeah. Colin, something you brought up in your episode with and your discussion with Colonel Thaden, maybe you don't want to be a commander. If that's how the structure is built, if that's how the education is driving, if that's kind of the whole point, what does that mean? Right. And, and those are all things I don't think we were thinking about when we started. We certainly were I not. Think yeah. it was, I know I wasn't. Yeah. It was, how do you get into OTS and survive it? And I hope we can still continue to provide value there for our audience. Same with ROTC. How do you get into it? How does it work? How do you get out of it successfully or whatever that means for you? And I do think that's still part of our core identity. But the other thing we talked about is we want to explore officership, what it means to be a member of the profession of arms. Yeah. And boy, howdy, I keep learning that I don't know a whole lot about that end. And because this is a journey, this is not a destination. Yeah. Lots to still learn here. Yeah. So command is a big one for sure. On my end, something that I know that we need to talk more about is the actual authority of the commission and how it, it comes to us from the Constitution. I mean, we've had some discussions around the Constitution and its importance and our responsibility toward it. But I think that there is more for us to explore, especially with respect to the special trust and confidence that is given to an officer as a steward for the Constitution on behalf of the American people. I feel like I need to spend more time with the Constitution, understanding why it exists, how it has persisted up to this point, and my role in protecting it. Yeah, that's funny, Colin. For those of our audience who have read Air Force Instructions or joint publications, the first couple paragraphs, I almost universally skip. It's really high level kind of legalese type stuff that says the chairman, the joint chiefs, the chief of staff will. And then I get to what I'm actually trying to read about, which is like right. the, the day to day that the tactics, if you will, the tactical side. Turns out all those paragraphs I've been skipping for 10 years, there's kind of a lot in there and it's yeah. kind of important <laughs> stuff. And that's what I think you and I are both realizing. We're starting to pull out from the super tactical view and we're starting to look up to the horizon and we're seeing that, hey, the things happening out here in the out space are affecting what's going on here and what we can do. For sure. And I remember, you know, we did a recording with some fellow podcasters and that was something they mentioned about officers, right? They need to be looking up and away instead of down and in. And I'm seeing that. I'm seeing that. Yeah. And a big part of that is understanding how those other things outside of the Air Force affect the Air Force, such as the political and economic environment and what we can do as officers to take advantage of those different opportunities outside of the Air Force or to protect our people from them as best as we can. Hey, real quick plug here. The Air Force recently announced a series of options to transfer to the reserves or to get out of your active duty service commitment early mm -hmm. and a program called Pals Chase. And we'll provide a link in the show notes to some of those announcements. But Colin, just to amplify what you're saying, this example of this program is a perfect example of what we're talking about. The Air Force has too many people. They're at a 20-year retention high. What does that mean? They're going to stop assessing as in high numbers. These are voluntary options right now to get out of your service commitment. Yeah, for right now. But if we retain too many people for right now, yeah, they may turn into involuntary. 
that's going to impact you. It's going to impact your folks. This is officer and enlisted. You know, one of the categories I was looking at is the linguist category, the one and three. So they're a group of Intel professionals, incredibly skilled and talented. They learn crazy hard languages and they do it really well. Those career fields are universally overmanned from airman basic to senior master sergeant. Oof, that whole career field is feeling, oh man, what's going to happen? Yeah. That's the kind of leadership challenge that if you're too in the weeds, you're too tactically focused, you may not be paying attention to the fact that the economic situation has led to this increased retention, which is leading to a potential force management of people, which could lead to people getting kicked out, which is increasing the stress of my airmen, which is why they were late today. Right? Like the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon to what's going on and why. Yeah are things that I have certainly opened my eyes to. And I feel like if I'm going to do a good job trying to take care of these people that have been entrusted to me, I need to do a better job of looking out and away and figuring out what's going on. The alligators are farther from the boat, Colin, than I thought. Yeah. They're way far out there, but they're affecting me. No, that's such a great analogy, a good way to put it. And we need to not only protect the boat from the alligators that are closest to us, but recognize that the onslaught is coming and we need to be prepared for it. Absolutely. I love that analogy. Anything else, Colin, that you saw that you really wanted to tackle before we moved on to a quick preview of some future episodes? Yeah, just one more thing that I think will lead us into that preview. As I was thinking about those requirements that have changed, the fact remains that there are really still just the three things that we have control over with respect to our ability to earn and keep a commission. And those three things are moral character, our physical fitness, and the commissioning requirements that we have to pass through it in order to get the commission to begin with. And just thinking about how they relate to the special trust and confidence that I mentioned earlier that is given to us through the Constitution, and thinking about that word trust. We've talked about this in other episodes. I know that you and I, Reed, have talked about where does trust come from, but it's a combination of three things that trust comes from somebody having demonstrated their character, their competence, and connection with other people. And looking at those three commissioning requirements, those three things that we have control over, our moral character, physical fitness, and commissioning requirements, mapping those over to the three things that enable trust, you can very easily see how moral character obviously maps to character. Physical fitness Mm -hmm. maps to competence. The commissioning requirements arguably maps to all of them, but a big part of going through a commissioning source is building your ability to connect with other people, to work with others. And it was just interesting to me to see that overlay there that in order to produce an officer that we can trust, the only things that we can control are the character, the competence, and the connection. And with that thought in mind, I went through the your learn, serve, lead trio, and you can see how those map to character, competence, and connection just the same. And also the things that I talked about in the episode about being a father or mother figure the stress inoculation, the well of fortitude, those things also map to character, competence, connection. And 
I get the feeling, Reed, that you could do this with pretty much anything that has to do with being an officer, that it all maps to character, competence, and connection. Because what do we need in an officer? We need someone that is trustworthy, that can take that special trust and confidence, that authority of, you know, from the Constitution to carry out the mission, lead airmen, manage resources, and innovate upon the unit. So I think that's where we want to go next is how those different core competencies come together. And maybe that should be the area of focus for officers who are currently serving and also looking at that as a way to recruit and assess talent. Yeah. When I think about what I was doing as an OTS instructor, we were creating an environment where I was evaluating the students in those three areas. Are you competent? Can you brief at a basic level that will accomplish, you know, Air Force needs? Okay, that's a competency. Do you have character? Are you going to lie to me? Are you going to do the right thing? Are you going to demonstrate that? And then can you get along with other people? Can you be a good teammate? Can you be a good wingman? Can you be a good member of a flight? I never put it in those words. I never had it laid out as clearly like that. I feel like I'd be a much better flight commander if I were going back and saying, this is what I expect because you're right. It's right in the promotion order. Yeah. Special trust and confidence. And if that's what we really need, that's what we need to evaluate. That's what we need to promote. That's what we need to measure. And I think that's where we are taking the audience for the next few weeks. We're going to talk about how can we do this? How can we recruit and find people and evaluate them on those areas? And then how can we give feedback? How can we measure it? Because if we can't measure it, then it's just me sticking my thumb in the wind and saying, okay, yeah, that one's good. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work at scale for sure. There's hundreds yeah. of us, thousands of us, and we need to be able to do this repeatedly, reputably, and transparently. And how do we do this? And so that's where we're going. Really excited about some of the things we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. Colin, I think you really did a good job of saying how we're kind of centering on this truth. All these things that I talked about, my learn, serve, lead, your three traits that you talked about, and these three ideas of trust, they're all kind of coalescing around this truth of how important trust is. And so, again, we want to thank our audience for joining us as we discussed our journey together and our growth, Colin, how we've matured, I hope, a little bit. I can still smile and have a good time, but boy, that, yeah. <laughs> that guy back a year and a half ago, he thought he knew some stuff. Audience, thank you for joining us. We love it when you engage with us. We keep getting emails. We keep getting Facebook messages. We love it. Please keep that coming. And this is where we're headed. We're going to figure out how we can assess, how we can measure, and how we can promote and retain the people that we can trust. I don't know that we're going to figure it out. I don't think we're going to solve all the world's problems with this, Reed, but I think we at least want to offer some thoughts on the right way to, at least what we think is the right way to recruit, assess, train, develop, evaluate, and then ultimately release officers into and from the Air Force. 100%. And I'm glad you're on this journey with me, Colin. I appreciate it. So anything else before we wrap up this week? No, same to you, Reed. Thank you for being on this journey with me and thank you to the audience. We would be doing this with or without you, but we're glad that you're here with us. And that will conclude this week's episode of Commission Ed.